0: Imagine there's a place in our world where the known things go. Shelves stocked with proof, and all around, a clutter of clues. At this point, it's worse than a clutter. It's closer to chaos. On the mantle, there's a clock. Its hands are racing. Its work's ticking too fast. It's like a heart about to burst. The phonograph won't stop. And who let all these birds in? It's time to get out of here rush through the door and out into a cornfield in the middle of Illinois in the year 1939, the American Heartland.
4: Holy cow! There's been an
0: explosion in the cornfield!
3: Ma! The devil himself's
2: broken loose down in our cornfield. He came a-roaring and a-rampaging right up from the fiery pit, blowing smoke out of his mouth and fire out of his eyes.
0: What is going on? Pulp science fiction is what? This is a banana story called The Warning from the Past.
5: If it's not enough trouble to have the radio start flattening his full head off right in the middle of my favorite program.
0: The Warning from the Past was published in the magazine Thrilling Wonder Stories in 1939. Here's what happens. After the explosion in the cornfield, the farmer's wife calls the police. The reporters call scientists. The scientists discover that the explosion had come from... a gigantic time capsule.
3: It is buried 20 feet under the ground, constructed of rust-resistant metal. The size cannot be determined as yet, but it is at least 30 feet in diameter... The top of the capsule was blown off by an explosion. Apparently, the light, the smoke, and the radio signals were designed to call attention
0: to the time capsule. I guess the people who built the time capsule were worried that unless the thing literally blew its top off, no one would ever notice it was there. It would be left unopened, its mysteries unknown.
3: Myths and legends surviving from pre-primitive times indicate that a civilization may have existed on Earth prior to the present, but this is the first definite proof of their existence ever found.
0: In the story, a group of brave men pry open the time capsule's giant door and make their way inside. Their entrance triggers a projector and a film starts playing. It turns out that the time capsule was built by ancient Earthlings after their planet was invaded by aliens. They made this little film about what happened to them, and then they buried it in a time capsule. I first ran across this story, warning from the past. In January 2020, I was really into the time capsule. So goofy. But there was another part of the plot that didn't seem as important to me at the time. It's this. The aliens didn't destroy the Earthlings with lasers or ray guns. No, they let loose a virus, the common cold a coronavirus, and everyone died. Time capsule, indeed. Welcome to The Last Archive, the show about how we know what we know and why it seems lately as if we don't know anything at all. This is the last episode of the season. All along, I've been making an argument about the history of evidence, arguing that our elemental unit of knowledge has changed from mysteries to facts to numbers to data. But the age of data is also a return to the age of mystery, A world in which we can't know anything. Only machines can know things. Mysterious, godlike machines. All season long, I've been trying to figure out who killed truth. What do time capsules have to do with it? Weirdly, they're a clue. To me, as a historian, chronology is like gravity, a law. A time capsule tries to break that law. It's like a rocket from the past blasted into the future by being buried in the ground. Sometimes I get the feeling we're all trapped in someone else's time capsule. In 1939, the world seemed to be coming apart. The world was coming apart. Pulp science fiction aliens from outer space would have been a relief compared to what was actually happening.
4: Germany has invaded Poland and has bombed many times. General mobilization has been ordered in Britain and France.
0: It felt unreal, dreamlike, a nightmare. But over in the United States, in New York, the World's Fair was opening. A fair called the World of Tomorrow. The World's Fair was held on hundreds of acres in Queens. There were all kinds of exhibits. Mainly, they involved traveling to the future. You could visit Democracy. sort of imagined Jetson-style city of the future, the future of democracy.
4: The nation's foremost companies present the magic of today that paves the way for the miracles
0: of tomorrow. Or you could check out preparations for a time capsule, the kind of thing that inspired that thrilling wonder story.
3: Uh, We've been reading a lot about the time
5: capsule.
4: Could we take a look at it? Well, sure. We can get to it this way. Oh.
0: (laughs) Time capsule of Cupillae deposited on the site of the New York World's Fair on September 23rd, 1938, by the Westinghouse
3: Electric and Manufacturing Company. If anyone should come upon this capsule
0: before the year A.D. 6939, let him not wantonly disturb it, for to do so would be to deprive the people of that era of the legacy here left them. This weirdness is a scene from a promotional film about the World's Fair, in which an all-American family visits the world of tomorrow.
3: The time capsule down there is actually a message from our time to theirs. Those who open and study it will know more about us than any man living today. Well, what I'm wondering is how anybody will know how to find it in the year. What was it? 6939.
0: Not quite in 6939, but in um, the last quarantine-free days of 2020, I headed out to Queens to look for the time capsule buried there in 1939. What did the people who buried it mean to say about the world of tomorrow? Could we go back in time and heed that warning from the past? I went with my producer, Ben, and with Olivia Oldham, who works for the podcast. We had an appointment with Liz Sevchenko, a historian of New York and of memory. She's the director of the Humanities Action Lab. Anyway, if you've seen Men in Black, you've seen the place where we met
5: where Will Smith got vomited back out in a giant
0: spray of demon goo. The site of the 1939 World of Tomorrow, it's pretty close to LaGuardia Airport. It's got all these remnants of the fair, these monumental huge rusting structures, gigantic abandoned spires, a massive metal sphere. It looks like a graveyard of the future. We're also
5: really close to, as I understand it, fact check please, but the... um, you know birthplace of our dear president so this is like where it all started mm-hmm. man of the future yeah we are a hero yeah, of the totally future exactly
0: when donald trump was born near here in 1946 his father fred was the owner of a construction business in queens the trumps had gotten married in 1936 and by the time the world of tomorrow opened they already had two kids probably they came to the fair Fred Trump rented a giant billboard near the fair for his Trump homes. It called them the home of tomorrow. When I tell people I'm working on a podcast that asks the question, who killed Truth, they usually say, uh, isn't the answer obvious? The murderer is Donald Trump. Okay, fair. (laughs) But all season long, I've been avoiding the usual suspects. I think they're just a little too easy. Also, I don't quite buy it. I think Trump might be a red herring. God knows the man's a liar, a colossal, dangerous liar, but it takes a whole lot more than one man to undermine an entire system of knowledge. Anyway, we had a different mission in Queens. Find that time capsule.
5: I think we need to ask something. I mean, there was a very understated little sort of like memorial-looking thing back there.
2: I don't know if we've if you've Was seen. it a, was it like a cylinder, like a low cylinder like yeah. a tree stump? Yes. That might be.
0: We'd asked Sevchenko along to help us think about memorials and monuments, and whether they contain truth or are really just containers of myths. She's written brilliantly about that stuff. We also thought she could probably help us find the time capsule.
5: Not that that boulder thing, but like where those bushes are.
2: <laughs> All right, okay, wait, this is, this is, this
0: is, is it, is
2: it. <laughs> This is it, we found
0: it. It's like a flattened Mm -hmm. Smushed something like if it were an obelisk that a giant stepped on and it went splat.
2: Yeah, it feels kind of self defeating because if you want something to be found 5,000 years in the future, why would you make it so low key and everything else about it? So, shouldn't there be like a
0: giant space needle spike coming out of it? Yeah, there's like a kind of dimple. Or, like, a yeah. nipple on the top of the cement. Yeah. It looks like it's a button. You should be able to yeah. press it. Yeah. It'll, and like, the whole thing rise like, out like a coffee maker yeah. or something.
2: <laughs> what if we pressed it and just ruined the whole thing?
5: <laughs> there's, like, a lip. Or, what's the opposite yeah. of a lip? It's like there's a little gutter underneath. Right.
2: Maybe that's where you're supposed to cry from. <laughs> <And you> what <will.
0: laughs> oh, so else would you do? It? I break my nails, honey. I'm not going to yeah. do
2: that.
5: <laughs> <laughs>
0: If you went to the World's Fair in 1939, you could see some of the contents of the time capsule behind a big glass display.
3: Well, who picked the stuff that was to go in it, Jim? A committee, aided by authorities in every field of science and the arts. It's a complete record of our civilization.
0: A complete record of our civilization, brought to you by Westinghouse. Section one, small articles of common use. Alarm clock, can opener, eyeglasses, bifocals, fountain pen, Mazda electric lamp, mechanical pencil, miniature camera, nail file, padlock and keys, and a safety pin.
2: I like the lamp socket. They have an electrical lamp socket that they put in there. <laughs> it's just like, outside the context of a house, how are you ever going to figure out what that was for?
0: Our guide in Queens, Liv Sevchenko, directs some of the world's most powerful public memory projects. A project about American prisons called States of Incarceration. Another called the Guantanamo Public Memory Project. After I read the list of the time capsule's contents, she got this look on her face. I just think, I mean, there's this weird
5: sense in which they're speaking to an, uh, an ignorant future population, like, assuming they don't know anything, and they're so excited to, like, educate them.
0: It struck us all as a weird and creepy kind of arrogance. We just couldn't puzzle the thing out. It was also strange that it had so few markings. We kept looking for text, a plaque, anything— Wait, what does that say? Oh. <laughs> I can't read it. <laughs> it says, I think it's the stamp it's of the, the gr- granite, the, you know, the. It's the company symbol of Westinghouse?
2: I think it, it's, it's either the Westinghouse or the concrete. It does look like that's think, a W, though. I
0: think
2: it's the, um, like, the quarry or something.
3: No, it says rock of ages! <laughs> <laughs> oh my it's from God. Mary! It's from Mary, <laughs>
0: Wait, what Wait. that? <laughs> what it you just, hey, just see what that yeah, that's Yeah, rock of ages. Rock of Ages. <laughs> There's a go. This is a spiritual moment. This is the Rock of Ages. Holy Moses. This season started in episode one with a crime scene in Barrie, Vermont, a place whose best known quarry is called The Rock of Ages. And geez, it turned out that they'd supplied the granite that made the lid to closed the time capsule. Now we'd left the last archive. We were in the twilight zone. Honestly, it really freaked me out. The Rock of Ages is the name of the quarry, but it's also the title of an 18th century hymn. The Rock of Ages is Jesus Christ. So weird. Also, I haven't talked very much about religion in this podcast, but I had a certain feeling just then, as we read the words Rock of Ages, engraved into stone. That feeling that some unknown and mysterious force is in control of our lives, for better or worse. That feeling is how humans came to believe in gods, Zeus, Aphrodite, Mars, In the coronavirus crisis. That feeling's everywhere. We left Queens and Tomorrowland for the origins of another future, in the Valley of the Gods. Silicon Valley.
1: Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards, a hotel upgrade, lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply.
4: for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobilecom slash unconventional unconventionalawards. That's tmobilecom mobilecom slash unconventionalawards. See you there. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. To inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M U S O R A.com to start a new musical journey today.
0: It's like we could be being pulled by oxen right now. Except it would smell better.
2: I actually think we'd move faster. We may move
0: faster. In February of 2020, we went to California. It was a few weeks before the whole state shut down, shelter in place, lockdown. Before people were even talking about those things, we were blissfully ignorant. We rented a car, got on the highway. Me and my producer, Ben, and my son, Oliver. Go West, young man. Oliver is 15.
5: Cherry red 2017 Camaro
1: convertible.
0: Uh, Top-down, of course. Uh, chrome wheels. It was Oliver's birthday, and so I rented a car that is exactly not the right car for a podcast. But Oliver had never been to California.
2: What are your impressions of California? Um, It's beautiful. It looks exactly like it did in, in Watch
1: Dogs 2. Um, <laughs>
2: like,
0: Every street DM. we go down, Oliver says, I've already driven down the street. I've driven down here guns blazing. Watch Dogs 2 is a video game set in a perfect simulation of the city of San Francisco. Playing Watch Dogs 2, you're part of an elite crew of hackers who are trying to catch the guy who killed Truth. Its plot is disturbingly like ours at the last archive. In the video game, the guy who kills Truth is basically Mark Zuckerberg, the head of a Silicon Valley data company called Bloom. Bloom's CTOS is like a giant spider web, endlessly gathering data. They're making backroom deals to trade our private information. We have to stop this. We're talking data manipulation on a
3: massive scale. Ricked elections, weapons programs, spying into people's homes. All of it controlled by one man.
0: Whenever I told anyone I was working on a podcast that was trying to find out who killed truth, almost everyone's first answer was Donald Trump. And almost everyone's second answer was Mark Zuckerberg. And fair enough. He's an obvious suspect, though, so I've been avoiding him too easy. I mean, he's the villain in a video game, for Christ's sakes. Anyway, when my son Oliver plays Watch Dogs 2, he has to drive simulated fast cars all over a simulated San Francisco. And here I was, taking him on a trip, a birthday trip, to a thrilling new city. But everywhere we went, he would be all, oh yeah, I've been here. There's a donut shop on the next block. And there would be.
2: This looks literally yeah. exactly the same as Watch Dogs. Mom, I'm going to have you play some Watch Dogs
0: later. Okay. I look at California, I don't see the superimposed dystopia of Watchdogs too. 2. No, I'm too old for that future. My California future, the one stuck in my mind, comes straight from the monorail in Disneyland.
4: And it's on its way now, leaving Frontierland and going a hundred years into the future, to Tomorrowland.
0: That's Ronald Reagan at the opening of Disneyland in 1955. The 1939 World's Fair was nothing compared to its successor, Walt Disney's Tomorrowland, built at the height of the Cold War. The future, as a space-age future, is an invention of the Cold War. Because Cold War scientists understood themselves as engaged in a battle for the future. Would capitalism prevail, or communism? Only science could tell. If scientists could predict the future, then they could build it.
4: This is Tomorrowland, it's not a stylized dream of the future, but a scientifically planned projection of future techniques by leading space experts and scientists. You find yourself living predictions of things to come.
0: A lot of Tomorrowlands popped up in California in the 1950s, not just the one at Disneyland. California was like a future factory, full of think tanks charged with coming up with a general theory of the future. Psychologists, political scientists, they were trying to predict human behavior by way of endless computer simulations. By the middle of the 1950s, when people pictured the future, they usually pictured computers, and they usually pictured California, where the computer industry was born. So, we drove our cherry red Camaro down Highway 101 to the Computer History Museum. It's in Mountain View, a couple blocks from the Googleplex, not too far from Facebook. We went to the museum not to look at old computers, but to use them.
4: So now I'm going to hit load, and it's going to start reading the cards. That's the sound of those little um, shoes or knives yep. grabbing the cards and sliding them in.
0: Carl Claunch is a volunteer at the Computer History Museum. He was showing us a punch card reader that's part of an IBM 1401, a computer first manufactured in 1959. This computer is the size of a room, a big room, say an elementary school classroom. I asked Clanch what school kids thought when they visited it. Do they recognize this as a computer? Like, are they no, just they, baffled they have no by idea. it? Yeah, so
4: that they, the docents have to tell a story that takes them back to the 1950s, and, and they're constantly contrasting it. So, for example, there's a, a, a piece of core memory that's used to speed up the printer, and it, its entire contents of this big block are one tweet.
0: Yeah, it's sort of like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, like, opposite. Mm-hmm. It's like Honey, I Enlarged the Computer. Yes. Like, it's actually a thing they know about, mm-hmm. but blown up to this giant proportion. Like, we're fusions. We're like, inside a computer. I
2: like the idea of using, like, a reference from the early 2000s or really the 1990s <laughs> to explain <laughs> a machine from the 1960s Elder. to kids in the 2010s. The kids, All right,
0: <laughs> Wasn't completely... Carl Clanch, he's a sweetheart, and he's also very modest. But he's much more than a volunteer at the museum.
2: Carl Klanch, computer archaeologist. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I don't have my hat.
0: <laughs> Clanch had done a whole lot of the work getting this computer from 1959 up and running. In his garage, he's got an old punch card reader that can handle punch cards that are bent and even a little tattered. And as it happens, I had some old screwed up punch cards that needed reading. If you've ever punched in at work like I used to do, that's a punch card. There are papers the size of a business envelope pocked up with tiny rectangular holes. Before the cloud, before thumb drives, before hard disks and floppy disks, there were punch cards. He stored information for a computer by encoding it in these tiny holes. We can still read ancient parchments thousands of years later, but old punch cards are useless after just a few decades because hardly anyone has the machines you need to read them. The past is getting shorter and shorter. And this matters to the work I do as a historian. A few years ago, I found thousands of really interesting punch cards. The cards were boxed in the files of this one company, a very early startup called the Simulmatics Corporation. And I was writing a book about them. Simulmatics was founded in 1959, a big year for computing. The name was a mashup of simulation and automatic. And Simulmatics wound up being kind of like the Cambridge Analytica of the presidential election of 1960. MIT's archives held the Simulmatics punch cards, but MIT couldn't read them. So they ended up shipping the cards for me to the Computer History Museum, where Carl ran them through his ancient machine. Here's the backstory on Simulmatics, some of which you've already heard if you've been a steadfast listener to The Last Archive. You might remember, in episode 5, how we talked about the 1952 election, where CBS hired a computer called UNIVAC to predict the results on election night. Well, a Madison Avenue admin named Ed Greenfield, learning about the UNIVAC, got the idea of helping a candidate win an election by building a massive computer simulation that could predict how people would vote. And then, four years later, in 1956, Greenfield got a contract from the Adlai Stevenson campaign, when Stevenson was trying, once again, to beat Eisenhower. A man you can believe in, son. Ah, yeah. Well, first, Stevenson had to win the Democratic nomination. And to do that, he had to win the California primary, a big state whose population was booming. Greenfield hired a bunch of people in California, including two political scientists, and helped Stevenson win the state's primary, and then the nomination. But he couldn't help Stevenson win the election.
3: As evening returns come in, the trend is unmistakable. It's Eisenhower by a landslide with 457 electoral votes to 74 for Stevenson.
0: The Ad men and their computers couldn't save Adlai Stevenson in 1956. But his loss didn't slow them down. Ed Greenfield started gearing up for the election of 1960. He hired people who'd done psychological warfare for the military, driving people to distraction, targeting messages, attention manipulation... One of those guys was the mathematician Alex Bernstein. There's a great film from 1959 called Thinking Machines.
4: What can we learn about thinking from a game of chess?
0: It shows a bespectacled Bernstein playing chess against a room-sized computer. All it takes are some printers, magnetic tape, and a chess board.
4: Mr. Bernstein and his collaborators prepared a chess-playing program for the IBM 704, a digital computer that has performed one billion calculations in a single day. It's never absent-minded and never makes an obvious blunder.
0: Bernstein helped create a field that became known as artificial intelligence. For the presidential campaign of 1960, he and Ed Greenfield at Simulmatics, they built this thing called a people machine. It was programmed with punch cards in very early Fortran, an ancient computer language. There were data cards, too. Each card, the cards I found in the archives, the cards only Carl Clonch could now read, each represented an imaginary American. Age, place of residence, economic class, race, gender, political persuasion. Here was the Simulmatics company's vision of the future. One day, computers would be able to predict human behavior and manipulate it. There'd be a lot of money to be made. There'd be a lot of power to accumulate. Greenfield thought Adlai Stevenson would run again in 1960, and he wanted Stevenson to use his people machine. And here, just here, is a snag in the fabric of time. First of all, Stevenson did not run for a third time. He only almost ran. But also, some of the people who got Greenfield's confidential memo about the people machine, they thought, Christ on toast, this thing should be illegal. One of the people Greenfield sent this proposal to was Stevenson's law partner, Newton Minow. Minow was a really important person because he'd go on to be the chairman of the FCC under the Kennedy administration. Greenfield's proposal freaked Minow out.
4: Dear Arthur,
3: do you remember Ed Greenfield?
0: Minow wrote a letter to the very eminent Pulitzer Prize-winning Harvard historian, Arthur Schlesinger Jr., about Greenfield's dangerous idea.
4: Without prejudicing your judgment... My own opinion is that such a thing, A, cannot work, B, is immoral, C, should be declared illegal. Please advise. Best regards, Newton N. Minow.
0: Schlesinger wrote right back.
4: Dear Newt, I have pretty much your feelings. I shudder at the implications for public leadership of the nation. On the other hand, I do believe in science and don't like to be a party to choking off new ideas. Yours ever, Arthur Schlesinger.
0: The people machine, needless to say, was not declared illegal. It went ahead. The Democratic National Committee hired Simulmatics, and when John F. Kennedy won the nomination, the Kennedy campaign hired Simulmatics. And then...
3: The unexpectedly delayed climax saw Senator Kennedy the victor with a clear margin of electoral
1: votes. At years-,
0: years and years later, I found Simulmatics' original punch cards, the punch cards it used to simulate the 1960 election. I figured, if I could read them, or rather, get Carl Klontsch, computer archaeologist, to read them, I could understand how this thing worked, and know whether it worked. So Carl read the cards on his ancient equipment, but we hit another snag. We got the data off the cards, but then we couldn't get the FORTRAN program to run. Knowledge on computers decays, becomes obsolete. You find your grandmother's photo album's in her attic? You can look at the photographs. You don't need a special program. Will your grandchildren ever be able to see the photographs you've got stored on your computer? Not likely. They'll have been lost in a forgotten sludge of obsolete file name extensions and hard drives and operating systems and disused connectors. There's a weird foreshortening of history going on. I think that's one reason people, or at least people like me, why we get obsessed with time capsules. Everything just seems to be slipping away all the time. If data has replaced facts as the elemental unit of knowledge, that's a problem. Because data, it's unbelievably shoddy. It just doesn't last. Anyway, even with my punch cards read, I couldn't get the Simulmatics program to run. I was sad. But fortunately, I had more reliable and durable evidence than punch cards. I had newspapers, stock certificates, and letters. So I was able to figure out what happened next.
1: John F. Kennedy settles into office as the 35th President of the United States. The youngest man and the first Roman Catholic
0: ever elected to the office. After Kennedy was inaugurated, Simulmatics went public with a big, splashy vision for changing the world.
2: The company proposes to engage principally in estimating probable human behavior by the use of computer technology. For this purpose, it may utilize information derived from public opinion polls and other sources concerning the composition and attitudes of the group under study.
0: That summer, summer of 1961, the scientists of the Simulmatics Corporation met on a beach on Long Island, where they worked beneath a geodesic dome that looked as if it had come from the future and crashed, half buried in the sand, like a time capsule. They were perfecting their people machine to predict and manipulate all sorts of human behavior, not just voting, but things like buying a dishwasher, too.
3: The scientists are preparing to work with electronic computers, the giant question-answering devices in use for some years, but are using social and economic data and their own knowledge to work out new programs for computer simulation.
0: Facebook, Palantir, Amazon, the Internet Research Agency, Google. It's as if each of these companies emerged out of that time capsule that was buried so long ago by the scientists of the Simulmatics Corporation. One guy, Eugene Burdick, a political scientist from UC Berkeley, who'd worked on the Stevenson campaign, refused to join Simulmatics. Instead, he became its fiercest critic. In 1964, he called the corporation a new underworld,
6: Most of these people are highly educated, many of them are PhDs, and none that I've met have malignant political designs on the American public. They may, however, radically reconstruct the American political system, build a new politics, and even modify revered and venerable American
3: institutions, facts of which they are blissfully innocent.
0: The scientists of Simomatics invented our data-mad future. If the world, daily life, sometimes feels unreal to you, it feels that way to me, maybe especially lately. So simulated. And you, your very self, so targeted. Remember Simulmatics, and when and how this started, with a people machine. Forget Donald Trump and Mark Zuckerberg and the rest of them, at least for a minute. Because I wonder. Did the Simulmatics guys, these masters of simulation, did they kill truth by accident? We had one more stop on our road trip to find out.
4: As listeners to this show,
1: you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet?
4: for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobilecom slash unconventional unconventionalawards. That's tmobilecom mobilecom slash unconventionalawards. See you there. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. To inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to Muzora.com, Musora.com, M U S O R A.com to start a new musical journey today.
0: California just always looks to me like a Playmo city, like a Playmobile city. Like there's like one of every vehicle, the roads are really clean and straight, the hills are green. I love the hills though, the like
1: looking at a street and just seeing like and then like all the houses that like are
2: like seem to be above each other.
0: Oliver, Ben and I left Mountain View and the Computer History Museum and headed back to San Francisco. On that drive, we sort of stumbled into the third most frequent answer I get when I ask people, who killed Truth? Some people say Trump. Some people say Zuckerberg. And then some people say, "Oh, postmodernism." Slightly less obvious, but still a prime suspect. So I've been avoiding postmodernism. In postmodernism, nothing is real. Everything refers to something else. But then its references all the way down, and at the bottom, there's really nothing. I don't think of myself as someone with a postmodern sensibility. Do you watch the streets of San Francisco? The what? The streets of San Francisco?
2: No.
0: Except, of course. I do have a postmodern sensibility.
2: Is it like when San Francisco was Gold Rush and mining?
0: No, oh my god, it's very young, beautiful Michael Douglas Uh, with Carl Malden.
1: Mom, he called you old.
0: Yeah, it was prospectors, you know, my people. Well, anyway, in the streets of San Francisco. So Michael Douglas plays this young University of California, Berkeley, either graduate or dropout. And Carl Malden is this kind of grizzled, older detective And he always just calls him college boy. And he's kind of got this gritty voice. And they're partners and they solve crimes. Sounds terrible. And they go (laughs) driving around all the time. They're always in these car chases. And it kind of like gets lofted all the time when they go over the hills because they're going so fast.
2: See, this is exactly the kind of thing that happens in Midtown Madness. Yeah. Oh
0: yeah, so maybe, I think that's derivative. And and,
2: in, and in Watch Dogs 2.
0: Okay, on that drive, we got into something of an argument about which was the best simulation of San Francisco. Watch Dogs 2, or another video game that Ben likes, called Midtown Madness. Or, My Beloved Streets of San Francisco, which got us, in a roundabout way, to postmodernism.
2: They're currently filming the new Matrix in San Francisco. Like really?
0: right now. That's wow. The Matrix, of course, is a film about how we're all living in a computer simulation. In an early scene in the film, our hero, played by Keanu Reeves, hides a computer disk in a hollowed-out copy of a book by the French postmodernist Jean Baudrillard. The book is called Simulacra and Simulation. Baudrillard writes, The simulacrum is never that which conceals the truth, it is the truth which conceals that there is none. Apparently, this book was the filmmaker's gospel.
3: The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth.
0: Yeah, 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 blah, blah, blah. This stuff drives me bonkers. Also, don't sue me, but The Matrix is totally derivative of a 1973 movie called World on a Wire that was an adaptation of a 1964 novel called Simulacron 3 that was about Simulmatics. So everything is it? about the simulation of reality. Yeah. We were in a simulation of a simulation of a simulation.
2: And the simulation of the future.
0: Look, I admit it. We had gone to California mainly out of desperation. <laughs> you try answering the question who killed truth in 10 episodes. Plus, it was winter back home, and California is so beautiful and warm. But it turned out we really did find a lot of answers in California. Everything did seem somehow to be coming together, like magic. History often works that way. You line things up on a timeline, and suddenly things make sense, because chronology really is like gravity. Here's the timeline of tomorrow, as I was starting to see it. In the 1950s, all Tomorrowlands were happy Tomorrowlands. By the 1960s, there were happy Tomorrowlands and unhappy Tomorrowlands. By the 1970s, Tomorrowland didn't look like such a happy place after all. One book, Future Shock, a bestseller by a futurist named Alvin Toffler, said it best.
2: Future Shock is a sickness which comes from too much change in too short a time.
0: Orson Welles narrated the movie version.
2: It's the reaction to changes that happen so fast that we can't absorb them. It's the premature
3: arrival of the future.
0: Driving around California in a ridiculous red convertible... We were suffering from plenty of future shock. We had one more stop. Stop number three. Turn to the building on the right over here?
2: No, it's like a little ways up and on the right.
0: Okay, I thought I had to go in there.
3: Your destination is on the right.
0: I don't, no, the... Going to the actual museum. No, I think we're going to
2: the office, office park.
0: We pulled up outside the internet archive near Golden Gate Park. I thought, Maybe this archive would have some kind of antidote to future shock. It's hard to think of any place else that's done so much to use technology to preserve our digital past instead of just letting it disintegrate.
2: Okay, so we're walking into what looks like a church, it's it was an old huge Christian
0: science monitor church. It's huge. Yeah, these Plastical large columns out front.
4: Yeah. <laughs>
6: Welcome. This is Brewster. I'm Brewster. This is Brewster I'm the, the Internet. Here.
0: Brewster Kill is a digital librarian and founder of the Internet Archive. It archives everything. You want old-time radio dramas? They've got them. You want video of Alex Bernstein playing chess against a computer? They've got it. You want old video games and the systems they're played on? Grateful Dead recordings? Russian audiobooks? Tractor manuals? The issue of Thrilling Wonder Stories where we read warning from the past? They've got it all in digital form. Kill showed us around the lobby.
6: So, you want to crank it up? Really? Yeah.
0: Wow. So, wait, what is this from? This Victor. This
6: this is a Victor Talking Machine 5. Like this? Yep. Uh So, we undo this brake and we uh, put down the needle. (laughs) Sounds pretty good, huh?
0: That front room looked like the entrance to a post office, a post office with old phonographs and also old video games. Um, Can we look at some city?
6: Yeah. Uh, There's some city. Uh, Name your city.
2: The last archive.
6: Last (laughs) archive. Let's put it in an earthquake zone, yeah.
0: Then Cale brought us upstairs into the main hall of the church. There was a beautiful altar in the front and in the back. In the nave, giant servers.
6: Oliver, those are those are servers of the 200th most popular website in the world. Uh, it's about 15 petabytes out of the 60 petabytes are the ones on, on the other side here.
1: What website?
6: Archive.org. So every time a light blinks, is somebody uploading something or downloading something to the Internet Archive? So it's actually, you never get to see somebody's servers. The idea is to try to put kind of a human face on what it is we're building, because that way we'll actually want to preserve it and keep it going.
0: We stood there for a bit, watching the lights flicker, the archive growing vaster. Then we headed downstairs, to the basement, to the main office, and sat down with Kale in a conference room. I told him we'd been thinking a lot about simulated worlds and time capsules, prophecies of the future. He doesn't have much use for time capsules.
6: It's uh, Libraries are all about having new things discovered such that they're worthy of being put in a library. A time capsule is a is a vanity project of a particular time. Um, really, actually, probably doesn't even intend to be open, or who cares if it's opened? It's all about the people being photographed with it at the time. Aren't they important?
0: Right. Who cares? No one will care. Most time capsules get forgotten. Also... Who locks away knowledge? Who buries knowledge? It's kind of nuts. The Internet Archive is something very different.
6: The vision of the internet that I signed on to is to try to build the library of everything, the digital library of Alexandria, the universal access to all knowledge.
0: This show is about why it seems so hard lately to know things, but of course, it should be so much easier lately to know things, not least because of the internet, this giant free library. Books can last for centuries. The average life of a web page, though, is just a hundred days, and then poof. So, Kale built this thing called the Wayback Machine. It takes a snapshot of the entire internet constantly. It is literally a last archive.
6: It's now, oh, I don't know, eight hundred billion URLs, um, four hundred billion pages. Um, it's used by hundreds of thousands of people every day.
0: As Kale sees it, the internet was meant to be one thing, a library, and it's still that. But with the rise of social media, it became something else. It became a people machine, designed to capture and hold your attention, to substitute a simulation of reality for the actual thing.
6: I think really, yeah, it was maybe the sort of late 90s, early 2000s when, uh, when we talked about uh, these great terms like eyeballs, right? What you really need is eyeballs for your service. And we need sticky eyeballs, right, to go right, and have sticky, sticky service. Right, sticky eyeballs, I Oh, uh, it's
0: just that. gross. And there's another problem, a problem Kale hasn't solved, a problem no one has solved. When you search on the Internet, you don't search. A machine searches. How people once knew things, how you found out truth was, you did your own searching. But on the Internet, it's too big. You can't do your own searching. Google co-founder Larry Page once predicted that eventually you'll have this implant where if you think about a fact, it will just tell you the answer. But that's not thinking. And it's a part, even if it's only a little part, of why it sometimes feels as though the world isn't quite real. We say goodbye to the archivists of the internet feeling a little like Neo in The Matrix when he first gets unplugged. Or like Orson Welles, suffering from future shock.
3: The
2: impact of Future Shock does not depend on the nature of its victims.
1: They are everywhere.
0: Future Shock. That's crap. We aren't victims of the future, stuck in some lunatic tomorrow land, or locked in a time capsule, even if we're quarantined in our houses. The future isn't something that happens to us. It's something we make. Who killed Truth? Truth. Who decided it was okay to ignore the past, to erase the past, or let it become unreadable? To make everything about the future, and simulation, and prediction? I had one more place to look. We headed home, all the way home, back to where we started. A short walk from my office, just when everything began to shut down. Okay, a little anticlimactic, like just a dorm room.
2: Yeah, so students... Just moved out of here. There's no, it's just this sort of prefabricated dorm room furniture.
0: Like slightly high, higher quality than a cinder block wall. Not, mm. not such good light.
2: But this is where it happened. This is where Facebook, <laughs> yeah. Facebook was born. For Face Smash.
0: <laughs> are you hotter? Or are you not? We'd gone to Mark Zuckerberg's old Harvard dorm room. All the dorms were emptied out. The students all gone. Evacuated.
2: So what what was your what was your grand vision for bringing us here?
0: I thought there would be flames like licking the walls, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. a veneer of hell. I don't know. It just you know, I think about that moment of ditching your education to go make piles of money. That always troubles me. Like if you could go back in time, was there a different? root. But I guess historians aren't supposed to ask those questions, those counterfactuals. Dresser. Bed. The the little desk that nobody uses because everybody sits
2: with their laptop in their lap. This is weird. I don't remember this door being here when we came in. Do you see this dark green door?
0: No. No, and everything else is just that bland security deposit white.
2: Why would there be a door in the middle of the hallway to this dorm room? It doesn't make Should any we sense. See
0: if it's locked? Can we go through? It's not sure. like okay. Ones here. What the hell? Oh no! Wait a minute. What just happened? How are we? How did we get back here?
2: Is this the last archive?
0: There's a secret passageway from Mark Zuckerberg's old dorm room into the last archive?
2: Oh my god. Thank god we're recording. (laughs) Jesus.
0: It's like we're in Clue. (laughs) Here we are, back in the place in our world where the known things go. Shelves stocked with proof and all around, the clutter of clues. A rock quarried in Vermont. Reels and reels of tape. An old punch card reader. All this stuff, from all the old episodes, it's laid out on a big oak library table. It's like I'm in a museum exhibit, but the hours are only midnight to 2 a.m., and there's no marketing budget or gift shop, and no one will ever come or believe I was here. I wish they had, like, tote bags or something. No one ever believes me about this place. And to think, all along, I could have just gone out that other weird green door. Zuckerberg isn't the killer. This case, it's like murder on the Orient Express. Everyone's the killer. All of us. Zuckerberg, Trump, postmodernism. I blame them for a lot. For opportunism and cynicism and nihilism. But with this crime, the killing of truth, there's plenty of blame to go around. You need people to know things. You need a collective commitment to empiricism. We hold these truths. That's why people invented democracy. Anyone who gives up on the idea that people together can share a world is killing truth. In an age of global pandemics, it's obvious how killing truth kills people. Democracy is a pain in the ass. It can be hard to be certain about anything when everyone has a voice. But the point of living with other people, the purpose of democracy, like the purpose of a university, is that no one has all the answers. You've got to inquire. You can't believe in someone else's time capsule version of the past or the future. You've got, somehow, to get out into the world and talk to people. And especially, you've got to listen. Mystery, fact, number, data. Truth isn't any one of those things. It's in all of those things together. And to really understand what the hell is going on, you probably also need to read some poetry or a book like Silent Spring. And I like to think you've got to study some history. You've got to love the places that make that knowledge, that keep it. Fragile places worth protecting. The last archive. And the next one. I've got to lock this place up now. Until next season. A season of doubt. Wait, wait, wait. This is a show about truth. We can't end without confessing. We did not actually go to Mark Zuckerberg's dorm room. I'm a professor. I'd never go to someone's dorm room, even after the dorms had emptied out. That was a simulation. Forgive us. The Last Archive is produced by Sophie Crane McKibben and Ben Nadeff-Haffrey. Our editor is Julia Barton, and our executive producer is Mia Lobel. Jason Gambrell and Martine Gonzalez are our engineers. Fact-checking by Amy Gaines Original music by Matthias Bossi and John Evans of Stillwagon Symphonette Many of our sound effects are from Harry Jeanette Jr. and the Star Jeanette Foundation Our foolproof players are Barlow Adamson, Daniel Berger Jones Jesse Hinson, John Kuntz Becca A. Lewis and Maurice Emmanuel Parent The Last Archive is brought to you by Pushkin Industries Special thanks to Ryan McKittrick in the American Repertory Theatre to Guy Fedorko and to Simon Lake At Pushkin, thanks to Heather Fain, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Emily Rostek, Eric Sandler, Maggie Taylor, and Jacob Weisberg. Our research assistants are Michelle Gao, Olivia Oldham, Henrietta Riley, Oliver Riskin-Kutz, and Emily Spector. I'm Jill Lepore. If you're interested in reading the history of the Simulmatics Corporation, you can check out my book, If Then, available September 15th, wherever books are sold. Visit simulmatics.com to learn more.